Greetings, my name's Adam Draycott and you are watching uh, the Ministry of St Augustine's Anglican Church online uh, for uh, this Palm Sunday, the 28th of March, 2021. Our sentence of scripture comes from Psalm 24. It says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Let me pray the collect prayer for today. Almighty and ever-living God, you have given us Jesus Christ, our Saviour and King. We praise you, he fulfilled your will uh, by becoming man and giving his life on the cross. Help us to bear witness to you by following in his footsteps. Thank you that in Christ you make us worthy to share in his resurrection. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.
Our readings for this Palm Sunday are Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 7. Uh, Psalm 22, verses 6 to 22. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Uh, and Mark 15, beginning at verse 1 uh, through to verse 39. Please make sure you read Mark's Gospel. Of all of those readings, uh, I'm going to be preaching from Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. As we come to Mark, chapter 15, let me pray. Father God, we, we ask for your help as we reflect on your word. We, we pray that you would show us the glory and wonder that is your son, Jesus, and lead us in the way of repentance and faith, that you might be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by asking if you know what irony is. Medication that you might choke on, that would be more than a bit ironic. Medication supposed to improve your health. It's not meant to be a choking hazard, so it's ironic. Uh, the word phonetic is not spelt phonetically, is it? Is that a little more than a little ironic? Or, you know, you go to the supermarket. This one gets me all the time. You, just, you go to the freshly butchered chicken and it's got the little sticker that says RSPCA approved. And I look and go, it's a dead chicken. Isn't that ironic that the RSPCA would give it a tick? Is it just me? I don't know. Reams of documents. And there's always that one page that has that sentence in the middle. You know what that sentence is. This page has been left intentionally blank. And you look and go, well, it's not blank. This is, isn't that ironic? I think that's ironic. Maybe irony is the psychic that cancelled their show due to unforeseen circumstances. <laughs> or maybe irony is seen at the cross. Is it more than a little ironic that the carpenter's son would be executed on a wooden cross uh, nailed with hammers? Now, irony, sometimes it is intentionally. Sometimes people don't have a clue uh, sometimes irony is vicious, sometimes it's hilarious, but certainly it's a case where people use words that normally mean the opposite of what is actually being said. But when we read the Bible, we should know that irony brings a situation into sharp focus. The Bible uses irony if we can see it. And it enables us to see and hear uh, what is really going on. It's, it helps us to see another layer to the text. Mark 15 is jammed full of irony. I'm gonna, my hope is that we'll be able to see it. As we come to chapter 15, we need to remember Jesus has had a public ministry for a few years now that religious and political leaders resent his popularity. They're afraid of his power 
Uh, he's a perceived threat to the establishment. And maybe, maybe they all fear a Roman crackdown in Jerusalem. Who knows? One thing is clear. Jesus has to be crushed. And so in chapter 14, there's a kangaroo court that finds Jesus guilty of treason. The disciples, where are they? They're decidedly absent. Uh, And now he gets an audience with Pilate, the Roman governor. And this is all politically and religiously expedient, which brings us to chapter 15. First thing, first point, the righteous dies for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That's ironic. That the guilt, that the innocent will die for the guilty is more than a little ironic. Uh, Where do we see that in chapter 15? Well, in the first few verses, there's a trade-off between Barabbas and Jesus by Pilate. That Barabbas, the insurrectionist, that he is set free whilst Jesus is condemned, the innocent one, it is truly outrageous. It's classic gospel, though. Classic gospel that the innocent one would stand in the shoes of the guilty. That is the gospel. They trumped up charge after trumped up charge. is thrown at Jesus in his trial. Uh, why doesn't Jesus defend himself before Pilate? The crowd demands uh, the execution of Jesus. The religious leaders are orchestrating all of this. Again, we ask, why doesn't Jesus say something? His answers are usually so sharp. They're usually so clever. Do you wish Jesus had spoken? Do you wonder why he hasn't spoken here in chapter 15? Why doesn't Jesus say something? Answer? Because it's not the plan. It's not the plan. He's been telling us what the plan is all along. In chapter 8, verse 38, is one example where Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus knows the plan. And we, the reader, we should know the plan too. We should remember it. And of course, God knows the plan. And the mockers cry. What do the mockers cry? Crucify him. Crucify him, they shout at verse 13. And again, do we see irony here? As they bay for blood to end Jesus, how clever and right they must think they are. Oh, the irony, their words are so vicious and hateful. And the Pharisees, so so pleased and maybe self-satisfied when a plan comes together. And maybe the devil is happy too. Oh, the deep irony that despite the evil of man, despite the devil's machinations, despite all of that, God is doing his thing. God is working his purposes out for good. It is his plan. This is his will. Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
He was led like a, a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. There it is. He will be crucified. And he will be strung up just as the crowd asks. And they don't know it. They don't know it. But that which they ask for is precisely what they need. And it's what we need. We need Jesus to stand in our place. We need the righteous to die for the unrighteous to bring us to God. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. The man who is mocked as king really is the king. The man who is mocked as king is the king. That's the irony. Jesus has been handed over for crucifixion. That means standard things like a flogging, probably. But what follows then is not standard. So you look at verse 16. Are we to imagine soldiers in their barracks having a lark here? Verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail the King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff, and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put his own clothes on him, they let him out to crucify him. Here they are, playing dress-ups with Jesus, putting robe on, uh, a strands of vine that are intertwined with 15 centimetre spikes crunched into his head, bowing to Jesus in mock reverence, hitting him with a staff. Maybe it's a mock scepter. Who knows? Spitting on Jesus, play-acting, hail the king of the Jews. Raucous, mocking laughter keeps this space alive until they are tired of their sport. Do you see the irony? Because Mark knows, and the reader knows, and God knows that Jesus actually really is, he is the king of the Jews. The soldiers, of course, they mean the opposite. They don't mean that Jesus is the king. He's just a troublemaker, a, a potential insurrectionist, a pathetic criminal, a dirtbag. He's going to die. They don't mean that. They're just play acting. But their mocking words actually speak the truth. It tells the opposite of what they intend. That's irony. And, and the truth is that Jesus really is the king. The man who is mocked is king. He is really the king. We know, and we know he's more than just the king of the Jews. He's the Lord of all. He's the Lord of the universe. He's even king over these very soldiers that mock him. He's king over you and me. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Good question to follow up. What kind of king is Jesus? Well, he tells us in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus calls his, the, the disciples together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
That's what Jesus says to his disciples. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be slave of all. You want to be first? Be a servant. That's the kind of kingship Jesus is talking about. Then he goes on to say in Mark 10, 45, The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here is the greatness of Jesus. His authority, his kingship is about serving, seeking the good of others, uh, the ultimate good which will eventually take him to the cross. He did not come to be served. He comes to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And those who exercise authority in his kingdom, where Jesus is king, we must serve the same way, with passion to serve and to love others. So it's no small surprise that Pilate could not work Jesus out. No surprise. Little wonder the Pharisees couldn't work Jesus out. All the religious leaders, they can't work Jesus out. See Jesus go to the cross, mocked as a king. He is the king. Here's the third thing. The man who is utterly powerless is powerful. The man who is utterly powerless is powerful. In the Roman world, the vertical pole stands in its place, usually in a prominent public position so that the population might fear Roman power. The horizontal piece is carried by the guilty to the place of crucifixion uh, where they're tied or nailed to the cross member, uh, which is then hoisted up and suspended from the upright. Okay, Jesus in Mark 15, he's now so weak he can't even manage to carry his lump of timber on his shoulders to the place of execution. He's too weak to do that. So look at verse 21. At the, a certain man of Cyrene, Simon the, father of, <laughs> Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus, curious detail, was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place of Golgotha. Uh, then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. He did not take it and they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. Um, when you read through Mark 15, is there what more could Mark add to communicate uh, this picture of complete and utter powerlessness? Because no one's coming to get Jesus. There is no rescue for Jesus here. Jesus hangs naked in shame on a wretched cross utterly powerless. And there's nothing like mockers to add to the humiliation. Look at verse 27. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right uh, and one on his left. Uh, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Now, um, this might recall uh, 
John's Gospel, chapter 2. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, it's actually part of the charge against Jesus in Mark chapter 14, verse 58, that he said this. Why is it a charge? Because the Roman rule wanted to minimize religious conflict so that the law said it's a capital offense to desecrate any temple. Uh, and so if you're talking about that, you're going to get in trouble. The problem with the accusation against Jesus, though, was that no one could get their story straight. That's chapter 14, verse 56, if you want to read it. Nonetheless, it's fodder for the mockers. Destroying and rebuilding a temple, let's face it, in three days would take some kind of extraordinary power. Um, I mean, have a think. What kind of power would that take? Uh, if you think of European cathedrals, ask yourself how many original architects laid eyes on the finished work of their cathedral? Answer, none because it takes so long. Can you build an Australian home in three days then? No, you can't. What about the temple in Jerusalem? I mean, this is crazy power that's being spoken of. And it's this claim of serious power that's being ridiculed. Yet Jesus hangs there powerless on the cross. That's the point of the ridicule. And it's a jarring contrast this extraordinary claim of power, this utter weakness here. And so the mockers think that they're the ones engaging in fine irony, that they're super clever, that Jesus claims so much power, so very much power. Ah, oh, behold him, the one who is powerless. Of course, we know that Jesus' demonstration of power and glory is displayed in the weakness of the cross. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus actually says, Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And of course, when he said that, no one knew what he meant. Jesus' disciples had no clue. It wasn't until after Jesus was raised from the dead that John says that the disciples had a light bulb moment. They remembered his words. They believed the scriptures. And everything that Jesus had spoken, they had a oh ding moment. And they knew that Jesus, when he talked about the temple, he's actually talking about his body. And the temple, that great meeting place between a holy God and sinful place, that place of sacrifice for atonement for sin, the temple, we know this side of the cross, that's Jesus. Jesus does that. He is the one sacrifice for all that makes atonement for our sins. That Jesus, you want to meet with God, you've got to do it through Jesus. He's now the great meeting place between a holy God and sinful man. So in his death and resurrection, Jesus reconciles us to God. And here's the irony, because the mockers, remember, they think they're funny and clever. They laugh at his weakness, they laugh at his pretensions. You said, destroy the temple and I'll raise it. But the apostles know, and Mark's readers know, and God knows the irony that, that it is precisely by staying on the cross in abject powerlessness that Jesus establishes himself as the temple 
and comes to the resurrection in fullness of power. And so the only way Jesus will save himself and save his people is by hanging on that wretched cross in utter powerlessness. The words the mockers use to hurl insult and condescending sneers actually describe what is bringing about the salvation of the Lord. They're right again. Because Jesus made outrageous claims to power, yet here he dies tragically and pathetically, but we, we see the very weakness the mockers find amusing is actually Jesus' path to power. It's the way of the resurrection. It's the path to becoming the way to God. The man who is utterly powerless is actually powerful. That's the irony. Here's the fourth thing. The man who couldn't save himself saves others. So look at verse 31. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him and said among themselves, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus saved others. How did he do that? Well, he healed the sick, remember? Exercised demons, fed the hungry, raised the dead occasionally. But now he can't save himself. So the conclusion is, hmm, not much of a saviour. This would-be saviour is a disappointment. He's a failure. But again, the voice of the mockers speak better than they know. Mark knows, his readers know, God knows that if Jesus is to save others, he cannot save himself. It's not part of the plan. We know Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. He's come to give his life as a ransom for many. And so to believe in Jesus means nothing less than trusting him utterly as the one who has borne our sin in his body on the cross. The one whose life and death and resurrection offered up in our place has reconciled us to God. Now think for a minute. Imagine if Jesus has leapt off the cross. Oh, that would silence the mockers, wouldn't it? Uh, see them scamper in your imagination. But if Jesus jumps off the cross, there's no sacrifice. There's no sin paid for. There's nothing then for us to trust except our own self-righteousness. Again, the mockers ironically speak the truth. If Jesus had saved himself, he could not have saved others. The only way he could save others is precisely by not saving himself. And so the mockers speak the truth in a way that is incomprehensible to them. The man who can't save himself, he really does save others. Maybe they see the nails that fasten Jesus to the cross because he's pinned. Maybe it's the soldiers that prevent any possibility of rescue. Maybe that's what they see. All guarantee his weakness and powerlessness. 
He can't save himself. It's a physical impossibility according to them. But we know this is not about physical constraints. Nails and soldiers cannot stand in Jesus' way. No, he's come to do the will of the Father. And it's not nails that hold Jesus to the cross. It's his love for the Father. To do the Father's will. A Father's will to love sinners like me and you. No, Jesus isn't going to save himself. And so here is grace secured at the cross. And because we get this grace, because we know sin is expensive, the sins we once loved, we learn to run from. And the obedience and holiness that once we found just plain hard work, we should now be hungering for and longing for. Are we woefully inconsistent with this? Absolutely. But if we've tasted God's grace, we know what this godlike change is like. We know what this glorious transformation is like. We know it's good for us. And so we long for more of it in the age to come. And so the Christian rejoices for the one who can't save himself saves others. And that is good news.
you cost a fee.